Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's very special episode of the podcast, we're taking our show on the road, or the train as the case may be, to attend the first annual Rights Tech Summit in New York. The Rights Tech Summit, which took place on July 26th, brought together a cross-section of companies, associations, and industry leaders to discuss innovation and rights management from blockchain to enterprise, and looked at how tech content partnerships are helping the creative industries drive successful monetization strategies. As you'll hear, one of my colleagues, Adi Shakara, was a panelist on what turned out to be one of the more lively discussions of the day. So I'll bring you some of that conversation, along with a conversation with the creators of the Rights Tech Summit, Ned Sherman and Paul Sweeting, about why they wanted to start the summit in the first place. We'll also have a few clips from panels that took place during the day-long event, and some follow-up interviews with panelists that are looking to change the way compensation works for artists in the media space. Now, to start this week's episode off, I want to play a short clip I recorded with Adi on the Amtrak as we were making our way up to New York. Give it a listen to hear a little teaser about the panel that Adi would be on the next day. All right, so we're hurtling up the uh, Amtrak Northeast Corridor on the way to Manhattan, and I'm here with Adi Shakara from Three Pillar, who will be talking tomorrow on a panel about uh, sidechains, cryptocurrencies, and fiat portals. So, Adi, for the the uninitiated who may have no idea what that means, what are you talking about tomorrow? So, we're going to be talking about digital currencies and how does the digital currency play into uh, the media sector and the rights tech world. Uh, How does having a digital currency play out in terms of royalties payments to the content creators and people who were getting paid two years after their content was sold out if they start getting paid instantaneously. How does that change the game? And if that is the most important thing for content creators or is accuracy uh, of the payment uh, more important to them? And that's what we're talking about. Okay, nice. Well, stay tuned. We'll be bringing you some of that footage in uh, the course of the podcast. Adi, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you later on. Thanks a lot. Before the conference got underway, I had the chance to talk with the event's organizers, Paul Sweeting and Ned Sherman, about the genesis of the conference and some of what they expected to be the highlights of the day. You'll no doubt hear the running water in the background of this segment. That comes from a nice little fountain that's inside the Japan Society in Midtown Manhattan. They were kind enough to host us for the event. And now, your moment of Zen. Okay, so I'm here with Ned Sherman and Paul Sweeting at the Japan Society, and we have the proverbial calm before the storm. It's about 7.45 on the morning before the first annual Rights Tech Summit. Uh, Ned, 
longtime friend of the podcast. Thanks for joining us again. And Paul, great to have you on. Good to be here. Absolutely. So can you give me a little bit of background on why you wanted to start the Rights Tech Summit? Well, um, I, in the course of my uh, other work, I've been, you know, I would, uh, which is focused on media, technology, public policy issues. Uh, I've been noticing um, that uh, a lot of different media sectors were all, of course, wrestling with similar rights-related problems having to do with the fact that digital technology has made it possible for uh, content to uh, get created and distributed and disseminated very quickly, but the sort of rights layer um, that's supposed to be in between it, the creation and the distribution uh, was still stuck pretty much in uh, at analog speed. And uh, that has become, uh, in a sense, the defining problem of a lot of different sectors of the media industry. And uh, I, I just noticed that a number of uh, uh, folks in a number of different sectors were all beginning to um, look at ways to bring technology to bear finally on that, that uh, link in the, in the value chain, and, and many of them were beginning to look at, at similar technologies, um, such as blockchain and cr cryptocurrencies and uh, smart contracts and, and things of that nature. So uh, I thought it might be interesting to uh, get folks from the different silos who are all um, wrestling with this problem in similar ways together uh, so that you might uh, have some cross-fertilization and, and and people in the publishing business might be able to learn uh, something from how people in the music business are tackling similar problems with technology. Okay, very nice. Um, and and who is the, is there kind of a keynote or like a, a main panel? I know there are panels that run throughout the day and we're excited to have Adi Shikara on one, but is there one that is kind of like the uh, the standout panel of the day? Well, there, well, there, are, there, there are a couple and, and um, I'd say you know the, the content overall is uh, it's, it's pretty innovative. Um, the, the the collection of of companies, individuals, and topics uh, really hasn't been covered anyplace else uh, uh, in, in in this way. We have Benji Rogers, of course, of Pledge Music, um, who's uh, very well known in the music industry, an artist himself, and and. Uh, course runs runs pledge music he'll be doing a fireside chat uh, with Rob Levine a, a billboard contributor in, in the in the morning uh, we have Tim Dubois uh, uh, known from from Arista Records president of Arista Records their Nashville office one of the heads uh, at ASCAP for many years um, he'll be uh, doing a fireside chat with uh, with John Potter um, and then, you know, sessions throughout the day on uh, a whole range of topics, as Paul uh, mentioned, that are cross-media. And that, that was really, uh, you know, what, what um, I was excited about coming into the, the project when, when Paul approached us about it. My background's in law. Um, and uh, as you know, Will, we, we, we produce the Digital Entertainment World uh, show as well as New York Media Festival, which are cross-media communities. And uh, it was very important to us that, that Rights Tech had that flavor. And as Paul said, that 
you know, one sector can learn from another sector. So you'll see a lot of that in the, in the sessions throughout the day. Yeah, yep. definitely. Well, guys, I know it's a busy day for you. Uh, I know you have a lot to do. Thanks so much for taking some time out to talk to me this morning, and thanks for letting us come and podcast from the event. Really appreciate it. Great to have you here. Great Absolutely. Thank you. One of Rights Tech Summit's keynotes was with Benji Rogers of Pledge Music. It was moderated by Robert Levine, who's the author of Free Ride and a contributor to Billboard magazine. In the discussion, Benji talked about the concept of the dot blockchain codec that he's working on to help establish more robust ways of assigning credit to artists for their contributions and their work. So the application he talked about is specific to the music industry, but its implications could be far wider reaching. Benji Rogers is the founder and chief strategy officer of Pledge Music, which is a really cool company. They've released a thousand albums and other projects, 130 of them in the top 20, 55 employees. He's also founded something called the Dot Blockchain Music Project. We're going to be talking mostly about that and a little bit about Pledge. So first, tell me, how did you um, how did you go from Pledge to Dot Blockchain Music Project, which is a very sort of, in some ways, a much more ambitious idea that could disrupt much more? Um, I think it's a willingness to experience as much pain as possible. Um, uh, um, so basically, in about October or September of last year, I started to kind of, I, I got bitten by what can only be described as the blockchain bug. Um, and I had this thought that the a blockchain database could be an extraordinary place to, to store um, digital truth, as it were. So basically create a, a state of digital permanence um, for, to say that a thing happened in time and space, and you could build on that as it moved. So I, I took out a provisional patent on a blockchain-anchored codec, um, which I thought would be a kind of a cool thing, and I worked with Alan Bargfried, a Berkeley lawyer, about this. Um, and I sat with my wife one night and I said, the problem is, is if I own this patent or I could get this patent, which, was, which would be a tough, tough one anyway, um, no one would use it because it's a private company. Um, and for a global distributed database of rights to exist, everyone would, it would need to be kind of pure. It would need to sit in and of itself. And what I really realized and I got obsessed by about the blockchain was is that it's its size and strength is its power. The number of people using it makes it stronger. And that's a really amazing thing that hadn't in my life existed. And uh, I attended the first conference where we talked about the blockchain and there was basically eight people in the room. And one of, the, one of those was Scott Cohen who came up to me and said, this is what internet conferences were like when, the, when, when we took the internet to the music industry for the first time, check it out. Um, and Pledge really solved what I would call the first mile problem, which is that you know, artists would basically go into debt, make things, and then sell them, and that had to work. But I was like, but all music is crowdfunded, really, so why not just let them buy in before it's made? So we dealt in the creation of these rights, which was a nice thing. Um, and I believed that all I would do is present a whole bunch of data to the music industry and say, look, the average user wants to spend $55 per transaction. Let's do more of that. Seven years later, we're still explaining that to the music industry to say that there is these customers who want to pay more and the music industry's answer was, let's send them all to a place where they can spend $9.99 a month on thousands of artists. So that was it. 
and basically what happened was is the last mile, I watched these artists come through our platform. We do, you know, a thousand artists a year come through this and they make these albums and they make money and they have a rich data set. And then the second that music gets kind of pushed into an MP3 or a wave, it just drops off a cliff. And it drops off a data cliff, it drops off a revenue cliff, it drops off, you know, all kinds of things. And it just occurred to me that if we don't, if we as the music industry want to affect a change, we need to present our work in such a way that there is a proof that a certain thing happened at a certain time. It's a, it's, you know, like, like I used to send tapes to myself, you know, of my own work with, with lyric sheets, you know, like that. And so what occurred to me was this, so I, said, I sat down with my wife and I said, I've, got, I've had this idea for this patent which I've got, I'm gonna give it away, I'm gonna create this, not, this public benefit company to try and do it. And she said, you know, reluctantly, she said, cool, go for it. And um, I published the first blog in November of last year, basically showing anyone in this room how to build this architecture. And I updated it with an even more technical diagram about a few months later. And I gotta say, I've just received thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of emails saying, can we help? I've had lawyers emailing saying, can we help? I've had digital service providers, tech companies, labels, publishers, you name it, saying, can we help? Because it's kind of touched a nerve. It's a bit blockchain-y, right? And I'm, we talk about this, I'm very realistic about what blockchain can do and what it most importantly cannot well, do to, today. But yeah. let me cut you off for a second. Yeah, before we get into some of the technical stuff, tell me, what can this do? So today, and for the last eight years, the Bitcoin blockchain has published a new set of information every 10 minutes, or 10.23 minutes, whatever it is. Um, and it's basically run by a network of thousands and thousands of computers all over the world processing little tiny transactions. And to overwhelm that network or alter anything is really difficult to do because you're not attacking one central system. You'd have to attack thousands of systems simultaneously, and that would invalidate the protocol. So something that a man, woman, or group of people named Satoshi Nakamoto created and gave to the world, essentially, is now about a 9.2, I think, billion dollar market cap industry in spite of every other um, uh, uh, financial institution, despite all that tried to attack it endlessly and daily. What a fucking opportunity that is, right? Like, what has ever come about that way since then, you know? So, and it was discussed, you know, by people like Fred Wilson and D.A. Wallach and a bunch of people, like, kind of, were kind of glomming onto the possibility that something was, was here, right? Um, what it can't do is it's not, um, it's fallible, right? It's still, there's people running it. There's still interest trying to take it down. It's, but it's still, it's, it's battle-tested. Neha uh, uh, Narula from MIT Media Lab, she said it's production-hardened. It spent eight years of hackers trying to take it down, and it's still there. And it's transacting 100,000 transactions a day. It's not enough for the music industry. It would, music would do more than that if we look at it from the point of view of its payment systems and uh, tracking systems. But if you look at it as a registry, if you, you know, register a, a 100,000 tracks a day or beyond that, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I think that it can, we can create a, an initial, what I call minimum viable data set or minimum proof, put it into, the, into a system, and if everyone feeds from the same trough, as it were, forgive the analogy, um, we can all know what's happening, and it broadcasts those changes every 10 minutes. 
And I believe that under the architecture we're proposing, and we're giving it as an open source um, system, the UI is open sourced, every piece of this can be reused and, and built upon, I think we can create a structure of ownership that has never existed before. And I demoed it last week at home, where I took something I owned, the musical and the, the copyright of, you know, the, the publishing and the, the performance, and I pushed it into a blockchain test net. And I could play it back, and I could change ownership, assign it to somebody else in this test environment. So it's basically built. Now we've got to you know, put, you know, put the, the, you know, the bells and whistles on. But, um, and that took six weeks, and we invested $75,000 into it. And part of the reason that we went this approach was not saying, let's all sit around and agree how it's going to work. It was, let's build it, and then we'll start to invite people in. And some interesting consequences of building it emerge, which, you know, become extremely interesting for the people in this can room. You, can you give us a concrete... I'll end that one there, but I will say that the rest of this conversation was fascinating, and you can find a full audio recording of it along with all of the other panels on the Rights Tech Summit website. That's rightstechsummit.com. Now, the next clip is from a panel on machine-readable rights. It included David Hughes of the RIAA, Luis Bonilla of Sound Exchange, Bill Wilson of the Music Business Association, moderator Courtney Harding, and others talking about the International Standard Recording Code, aka the ISRC, and some of the inherent difficulties blockchain might be able to help solve with metadata as pertains to royalty payments rights. Listen as David Hughes uses the example of a song called Love to illustrate the point. So real quick, what is an ISRC code for the folks in the room who um, might not be as familiar? And if we can just sort of, you know, we're all sort of acronym people, but I know that um, okay. not everyone, I mean, th this is very, very complicated, crazy stuff, okay. so. If the previous panel went through any of this stuff, you could, did everybody familiar with the ISRC? Let's just do a quick. Uh... Okay, so it's an ISBN type number. It's not exactly the same for an individual unique sound recording. If anything significant changes in the sound recording, it's assigned a new number, theoretically. Okay, um, great. Sorry, so continue. Yeah. Sorry about that. So, um, no, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's back up and talk about, again, why, why don't they have to submit this to Sound Exchange? If, if the Copyright Royalty Board could change the law so that services okay. are required to provide ISRC, that Got would it. be awesome. Because okay. it took a lot of effort to get where we are. We match 90% or 91%, like the minute things came, come in. But that, that 9%, it takes a long time to get matched. And right. it's always because of services providing bad data. So, I mean, the, the bad data, it's something that we could probably fix on the RO side, on the label side. But if, again, if services, if they have people typing in their well, metadata. Well, let, let's, gi let's give an example. This is a true example. Sound Exchange gets a report from a digital broadcaster, and it says the song L-O-V-E by N. Cole. Okay, so that narrows it down to the 12 recordings that Nat King Cole made of the song Love that he wrote, and the three recordings his daughter made, and the 17 other recordings that Natasha Cole and anybody else who's... And we haven't even touched on the 127 other songs called Love. Okay, so that's why we need these numbers. And if they reported the number to Luis, suddenly a lot of his pain would. Right. Well, there's yeah. also the problem is that you know how many artists do you get named tra named artist name and how many you like uh, if 
featuring artist name and track one. Right, no, yeah, I, I was, various I was artists. Say, I was going to say to your point that don't worry, the label name is not available. Well, I've been trying to I've been trying to change my name to various artists since 1999. <laughs> I'm this close. I think unknown artists might be better. Featuring guest. That's that's why I'm changing my driver's license tomorrow. Part of the promise of blockchain is its purported immutability, or in plain English, inability to change. Once something is logged to the blockchain, it can't be undone or reversed or hacked. At least that's the idea. A recent hack of the DAO that saw hackers siphon millions of dollars of Ethereum has put that concept of immutability to the test. Listen as Adi Shikara, Cedric Coban, and Tone Vase fueled a question on immutability from Michael Turpin. So I'm, I'm going to la- ask one sort of last question before we get to uh, some questions from the audience. And this uh, really comes down to um, what the solution is going to look like. Because you know, I, in an ideal world, we'd mentioned B2B, we'd mentioned uh, B2C, and we just mentioned discovery. Um, blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's an altcoin, whether it's a private permission to blockchain, um, you know, we've, we've certainly had our issues over quote, immutability, right? So immutability is what's been used for Bitcoin, and it's kind of one of these hot-button words like, is the Pope really infallible in all things? I mean, that's really <laughs> how it's discussed. And I, 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 when I refer to sort of another blockchain that still has a pretty good reputation, obviously the other immutable blockchain had been Ethereum, but we know that's not the case anymore. It's been blowing nope. up. It's actually had two unimmutable incidents in the last uh, four weeks. Uh, five, three, actually, if you include the DAO hack. Um, so, uh, and obviously, Bitcoin is only immutable until something happens there, because technically, if you got 95% of uh, the miners to agree on something, and they can't even agree on increasing the reward, the um, block size from one uh, meg to two megs, uh, you you would be able to go and roll things back 51% of tax. So, we'll call immutability immutability light, and perhaps with some of these blockchains, at least they've been sustainable. So. Um, so basically, if we're looking at what the holy grail is five years from now, and we have a system that everyone in the industry uh, adopts, which typically happens in an industry that wants to have one standard, um, will it be, number one, um, Bitcoin and just other things tacking onto Bitcoin because that's the immutable blockchain and the one that most people uh, have supported to this point. So you'd have side chains on top of it, you have fiat pegs on top of it, as sort of the uh, initial title would suggest. Or is it going to be, you know, a permissioned blockchain for rights and some some uh, some um, uh, set of other ones that are basically done by startups as opposed to an industry consortium? I'll start with you. I'm biased. I would say it's not the the former. So I don't think everything will revolve around Bitcoin. There are extremely good uses to the the main analogy, which was it's a good store of value and you you can't attack it. It's just going to be there forever. Uh, So you can definitely do things with that, but I don't think the core of uh, many business models will rely on it. So if you have a a company that's just trying to have, uh, you know, put their birth certificate or, or their copyright somewhere, they could put it in a, a database or a sidechain, and they could have it stamped in the Bitcoin blockchain. Like Factum does. 
Like Factum does, exactly. That, that's totally legit. And I think it's a good use of that, that kind of uh, technology. But I do think the future of the music industry and the future of everything revolves around different blockchains. That technology, that invention that happened in, in 09 was just the beginning. Now we're going to see multiple versions of it uh, with their different flavors. There will be one tailored specifically for the music industry. And it doesn't have to be one. It can be one, and like Benji was mentioning earlier, you'd have a... Uh, a agnostic, you'd have, uh, like his, his uh, .bc would be agnostic on which blockchain is connecting to it. So if our blockchain could read the data on there and we could do the payments with uh, the BitUSD we're using, whereas somebody else running a startup could read Benji's .bc and pay through Bitcoin. That, that, that's what I think the future is going to be and the best one will win. Or there not even be a best one. There might be one that's very catered for the artist and one that's very, you know, for totally different, you know, selling rats. I don't know. I don't, it could be anything, really. So, uh, yeah, from my perspective, I really see Bitcoin as an implementation of blockchain focused around cryptocurrency and the finance piece of it. Uh, it doesn't apply to everything. Blockchain in itself doesn't apply to all the problems. So I do see, specifically for the music industry, there has to be another solution. Uh, don't know what that's going to be yet, but probably would not be Bitcoin on its own. Okay. Um, the second piece, it comes out to um, when people are trying to solve this, uh, it, the immutable part of it doesn't have to be guaranteed. It's almost, is it better than what we have today? We move from uh, applications that were being six, like billions of dollars in integration to people move to API-based system that it became easier to integrate. Now we are trying to move to a system where everyone is still building on their own stack, but it, because it's roughly the same, it's very easy and automatically just works together. I think that's where the industry is heading to. And if you're able to do that, if even if it's a blockchain specifically for just the music industry, but if everyone is on it, on an own right, that would work. Um, and that's why I see the industry heading, not just for music, but some of the other uh, pieces as well. Even if it's like 100, companies in the music industry do that, that is still better and stronger and more secure than one company. Hacking 100 companies is still harder than one company. I understand like hacking is a big problem and security is a big problem, but still, like it's not that straightforward. You can't you just go around and try and hack into 100 different companies at the same time. Tone, take us home here. Where do you see us? All home? right, so um, I will briefly mention what happened with like the Ethereum and the split, the blockchain got split into two. That almost happened to Bitcoin for those that haven't paid attention to Bitcoin for a few years, during a year ago, during the Bitcoin XT versus Bitcoin debate. And I was on video actually describing word for word what just happened in Ethereum. I described how this could have happened in Bitcoin. Um, also, some of us predicted how the DAO was going to end, and it ended exactly like that. I have videos on that as well. But um, um, so I, I want to comment real quick where you said making payments easier. That is very vital. The thing is, you don't need uh, Bitcoin to make payments easier. The problem with payments is the current regulatory structure on payments, known as anti-money laundering laws and know your customer laws. Uh, that is the biggest problem with payments. If uh, we had no money laundering laws and uh, KYC laws were very simple, uh, Bitcoin probably would have never been invented because there would be no need for it. Um, also, as far as a blockchain solution for the music industry, 
I don't know if the blockchain is needed as the solution uh, because the Bitcoin blockchain, and again, I'm focusing on Bitcoin because I think there will only be one blockchain with security of a global mining network. Like we only have one internet. Yes, there are a lot of intranets. Each company has an intranet. Um, and all the information on the intranets combined is probably greater than all the information on the public internet. But the world still uses a public internet, and there's just one of them. So I do believe that Bitcoin would be the backbone. Now, what will be built on top of it, we don't know yet. We're still getting there. It's early. Uh, but as far as the decentralization aspect goes, uh, Bitcoin was able to decentralize a method of payment, which is very useful. Uh, and the reason why it's almost instant, takes about 10 minutes, is because it removes the regulatory overhead of a traditional payment. Now, um, all of you were able to receive an email within seconds back in 1999. There is absolutely no reason why your money couldn't have gotten to you anywhere in the world as fast as an email did back in 1999. So you want to think about what are you decentralizing? Is a decentralized solution right for you? The reason why Bitcoin is decentralized payments is because payments were being censored. That is also the reason why you always hear Bitcoin used in illicit activity. Well, it's because those are the payments that are most censored. So those are the payments where Bitcoin makes the most sense. Um, how censorship prone is the music industry or the digital rights? Is it a censorship problem? If it's not a censorship problem, then is a decentralized solution, which is a lot more difficult and not more efficient than a centralized solution. Is that the right solution for you? And, and that is a question that um, you have to think about before adopting a blockchain solution for what you're doing. Um, what is the point of creating this decentralized structure? Is it beneficial? And I, I would say basically that the holy grail of sort of the private permission blockchains in the rights industry is to have a immutability light where at least you have a permanent record that isn't going to get you know hacked in a honeypot with uh, all your records being downloaded by a Russian hacker. When you have cryptography on it, you might get to one record at a time. Danny Anders is an entrepreneur who founded a company called ClearTracks, a marketplace for managing and clearing music rights. I caught Danny during a networking break before his panel on rights tech marketplaces, and I asked him to fill me in on ClearTrack's mission. All right, so we're here at one of the networking breaks with Danny Anders, and Danny, I won't keep you too long because you're on the next panel, uh, but uh, can you give me a quick rundown on what ClearTrack's mission is? Sure, ClearTrack's is trying to make it easier uh, for all kinds of artists and rights holders to manage and clear the rights for derivative works okay. uh, and distribute them uh, in real time. Uh, so we facilitate the monetization of those derivative works and allow, uh, as soon as the revenue comes in, we pay out all of the rights holders in real time. So essentially, we uh, cut out all of the middlemen. Uh, provide 100% of the revenue back to the rights holder, uh, and the original rights owners just pay a simple hosting fee, or the person clearing the rights pays a small fee. But we're trying to create a much more efficient way to, that allows everybody to manage and clear the rights very quickly uh, and monetize them in more ways. Okay, nice. How's it going so far? It's good. Uh, right now, we're uh, kind of in the stage of building up the content platform, so we're looking for 
rights owners who own or control their rights uh, to start uploading content and monetizing it directly on the platform and then open it up. Uh, they can create all kinds of templates uh, and smart contracts over how uh, their works can be used so they can pre-license their works or they can just simply register their works and let people make requests for licenses. But at that point, it still speeds up the licensing process. So uh, we're trying to create more efficiency. So yeah, the more content we have in the system, uh, the easier it is for us to find people to actually license your works for you yeah. and create a new new source of revenue. And where can people find you? Uh, they can go to cleartracks.com. Okay, nice. Cool. Thanks very much and break a leg. Thank you. Definitely. Carl Florsch is the lead developer at Ujo Music, a company that's looking to rebuild the music industry on the blockchain. That may sound like a tall order, but based on how energetic Carl was in talking about Ujo at the end of a very long day, I wouldn't bet against him and his team. Okay, so we, we just wrapped up a full day of conference talks, and uh, one of the, I imagine, youngest panelists here is Carl Flourish mm -hmm. with Ujo uh, and uh, building a super cool platform. Tell us a little bit about what the uh, the mission of your product is. Sure. So uh, Ujo Music, uh, it started out with a, a website essentially called The Problem, and it was identifying some issues with the music industry um, that we saw. And, you know, lack of transparency, uh, difficulty for artists to, to get paid in, in a timely manner. It takes you know months and months before artists can see their money and sometimes years um, that, to see their money from, from royalties. And so we just kind of identified some problems and through that we were, uh, Imogen Heap reached out to us and we built a prototype uh, basically just showing off uh, what is possible um, and turning that month long or many months long uh, turnover time for for artists into you know a matter of seconds using the ethereum blockchain so uh, then from there which we we, we got some uh, attention and kind of just showed the capabilities of what you know ethereum and blockchain could do um, we've we've been talking to artists and talking to uh, big organizations in the industry on how we can solve the different er uh, issues in this industry and basically uh, clean up a massive data problem that that has ensued in this uh, you know put together uh, music industry trying to fit itself into the digital age and how long have you guys been at it uh, so we started um, a little like around a year ago uh, okay. and uh, the the um, the, the project has, has really morphed into a, a two-front approach where we are addressing the, the major industry players, um, trying to essentially you know, keep their databases in sync so that artists can at least uh, expect their payments or they expect their you know, works to be identified properly throughout their, the many databases. And we're also building uh, a, a artist-facing um, platform for independence where what we're doing is we're enabling uh, current, well the current system is essentially an artist will uh, upload their song to Spotify, to Apple Music, to uh, and a whole large number of services, Bandcamp, and all of those, those uh, 
platforms will essentially you know play their music or provide one specific service and and data analytics and so we identified that as you know now what the artist has to do is the artist for them to have any understanding on of, of what their actual you know artist footprint is they have to look and download all of the songs from all of the platforms make sure that the metadata is properly assigned make sure that you know they're not getting they're getting paid for each one of them make sure you know they have it's a huge maintenance burden for for an independent artist mm -hmm. um, and so what we're doing is instead of you as an artist going out to to give away your data essentially renting space in these in these large services you are using the Ujo platform and so the Ujo platform is decentralized and artist controlled so what that means is you use a front end for for essentially a, a service right and you can upload a song upload a uh, album and that will be registered in a decentralized database that only you have control over so if you go to a, another service maybe it first you upload to like a Bandcamp style website which uh, you know has that that uses the Ujo platform essentially allowing you to upload songs and albums then you now have a registered database of your uh, your works you can go to a crowdfunding Ujo website or it could be a competitor if it doesn't have to be you know created by our our team to be interacting with this uh, this decentralized artist controlled database now the, the crowdfunding uh, service can essentially allow you to crowdfund your next album that you, you know, released a single for on your, on your uh, like, uh, Bandcamp artist page. So, so it, it, pr it provides a, a level of interoperability and also it makes sure that each one of these platforms stays in sync. When you change a song title from platform A, it will be, it will be automatically updated from platform B from platform C because they are all pulling from the same data set and if if uh, if you know you you write uh, if like for instance Spotify might go bankrupt and just shut down and that means you you've disenfranchised tons of your fans and you've you've made it very you know you have to re essentially you have to re-upload all of your stuff to a different service so using this underlying decentralized platform it means that your data is protected. So you don't actually have to rely on kind of renting space in these other services. Okay, nice. And it's Ujo, U-J-O. People can go to, is it Ujo? Ujomusic.com. Okay, nice. <laughs> well, thanks very much. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. <laughs> Tone Vase was on the panel alongside my colleague Adi Shikora. And during their panel, Tone wasn't shy about expressing skepticism around how blockchain could be used to help the music industry or why it might be used to do so. I caught up with him after the conference was over and got an extended version of his take. Uh, all right, so I think maybe I will just start it up with um, most folks here, most folks here are pretty bullish on blockchain. You not so much. Uh, what's Whoa, whoa, it's actually the opposite. I'm a really? huge, no, I, I am a huge Bitcoin supporter. Okay. I just think that Bitcoin is the one and only block, I'm the, uh, like people in the blockchain space, mm -hmm. like think of me as like the Bitcoin maximalist, because I think that Bitcoin is the one and only blockchain. 
Okay. And I'm a huge believer in it. I have most of my money in it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just don't think that a blockchain solution is the solution for everyone, uh -huh. including the music industry. I don't think I don't think a blockchain solution is what they need. But I'm a huge blockchain fan for where it's needed. I just don't think it's needed here. Yeah. <laughs> that's the <laughs> so, that's so the gist of it. Where where do you think it's needed? It's needed in underserved markets. Okay. It's needed in markets that need uh, to get around regulation or in markets that are underserved. Um, so, which is why it's, you know, it's been popular in the drug industry and porn industry because those are underserved markets because the government prevents money from being used for those because they think they know, have better moral judgments. So like, the, for example, the drug market is underserved by the US dollar because they're frowned upon it. Like even the marijuana industry that's legal in Colorado is underserved because they can't put that money into the bank because marijuana is still illegal federally and banks have to follow federal regulation, not state regulation, which is why uh, marijuana stores in Colorado have to buy giant safes and keep the cash because they can't bring it to a bank. So that is an underserved market by the US dollar. And then we can also talk about other industries. This is where a decentralized blockchain solution is helpful because it gets around these issues. But I don't see the music industry as being underserved. The music industry just can't get their shit together and get into <laughs> one room and decide on how they want to do this. But the technology to get it done has been around for a, a decade. You, they didn't need Bitcoin. They didn't need, Bitcoin can do a couple of minor things, but 90% of the problems are uh, completely, you know, regulatory and just people getting together and agreeing on something. Has yeah. not, like the technology is not their issue. All right, have you been recording this yet or not yet? Yeah. You have, yeah. oh, okay, great. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so so that's how I see it. Okay. Uh, there are there are reasons to use the blockchain, and there aren't reasons to use the blockchain. Uh, Bitcoin has been uh, the only provable example of how a blockchain is working, and most of the other things are distributed ledgers or private blockchains, which is a bad term in my opinion because private blockchains I don't believe are blockchains. I think they're databases. Uh, to me, a blockchain is the innovation that was created by Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin. And that was the proof of work mining algorithm. And that's what creates, gives Bitcoin blockchain its security. I think that was the innovation. And I don't think that's the innovation that is necessary for the music industry, as we talked about at this conference. Right. Uh, because there's no censorship problem. I don't see a, a need to decentralize um, copyright. I don't see a need to decentralize authenticity. Uh, this is just something that the publishers and the record labels and the artists, they just need to agree who is the authenticator of the music or of the art and store it in a 
database that they all trust because they're all supposed to be trusted parties. They all should trust each other. The publisher should trust the artists. Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty much trusted parties. They're, they're, so they don't need a decentralized solution because a decentralized solution makes things more complicated. Seems like they almost um, need the opposite. They do need the opposite. Uh, the blockchain is there to help break regulation. Meanwhile, the copyright industry is trying to add regulation or their own regulation or simplify their own regulation, which is, I think, which is exactly right. I think it's the opposite of what they need. They just need to get together. They just need to get on the same page. Um, yes, Bitcoin can give them a micropayment system that will allow people to get paid peer to peer. So the movement of value can go directly from the consumer straight to the parties that deserve a percentage of that payment. But that is the decentralization of a payment that is very different than the decentralization of the copyright, which I think is completely unnecessary. Why does the copyright need to be stored on a thousand different nodes and computers all over the world? It can just be stored in a dozen places controlled by five or six different entities and they're just storing them in a dozen places in case something one of them crashes in case electricity goes out in one part of the world um, so so that's useful just copies of it but th there's no reason to decentralize there there's no fear of censorship now if we were having this discussion in say north korea there might be a very large need to decentralize ownership because a very communist country doesn't believe in property rights. They don't believe in ownership. And then you are scared that the government will come and destroy your proof of ownership. If you are in a region that has the fear of uh, men with guns coming in and squashing your ownership, then a decentralized solution to prove you're the owner is what you need. But not in the first world. We don't have a problem with proving ownership and yeah. uh, I can have I can make the same argument for let's say property in general like a house deed there's no reason to decentralize it you know the parties involved just need to agree on where it's being stored how many copies need to be made to make sure that it stays that way and who's holding the the admin rights to change that data and whenever it's changed everyone is notified and everyone agrees and signs off there, there is, uh, this could be in a reasonably small group of people uh, that trust each other because it's in all of their best interest to have the most accurate records possible, which is how I feel the music industry needs to be. And you mentioned in the, uh, in the panel today some of the videos that you've made predicting things like the, the hacking of the DAO. If folks are interested in, in finding some of your writings and videos, where should they go? Absolutely. Um, you can. Uh, the best way is probably to just Google my name, Tone Vase. I'm also on Twitter. My blog is called LibertyLifeTrail.com. I usually just. I, I, I don't. I don't have. I travel around the world a lot. I haven't had time to write original content on my blog, but anytime I make videos on other people's blogs or uh, a blog that I'm a video blog, I'm always on is called World Crypto Network. I try to link the videos back to my blog, Liberty Life Trail, 
Uh, but if you just search Tone Vase, uh, T-O-N-E-V-A-Y-S on YouTube, you will find them. And look for the most recent videos. That's when the DAO hack happened. Um, I predicted it to the T. If you go back one year and find a video where I describe a, a hard fork creating two equally valid coins in the Bitcoin network, Bitcoin versus Bitcoin XT, that is exactly what just happened with Ethereum. Uh, and my latest uh, one is about Steemit, which is Steam, which is another one that's recently in the, in, in the blockchain world as the new revolution of how content is going to the internet. And I'm also very critical of that model. I think that's also going to end very badly. Okay, nice return. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'll wrap things up on this very special episode of the podcast with that interview with Tone Vase. As I mentioned during the podcast, you can hear full audio of each panel on the Rights Tech Summit website at rightstechsummit.com. You can also tune in to the panel Adi Shikara was on via Three Pillar Global's YouTube channel. We'll also have 360 degree video of that panel hitting the YouTube page later today. So keep your eyes peeled for that. If you saw our first exploration into the world of virtual reality and were a little less than impressed with the video quality, give us another try. We got our hands on a Samsung Gear camera before it has even come out in the US because that's how we roll, no pun intended. So the video quality this time should be substantially better. Special thanks to Ned Sherman, Paul Sweeting, and the rest of their team for letting us record this episode from the Rights Tech Summit and for all the help along the way. Huge thanks to Vota Simmel at Slides Live for the audio files on Adi Shikara's panel. He also recorded video of some of the panels that you can see at the Rights Tech Summit website. If you watch the videos on Three Pillars' YouTube channel, you have Missa Goodier to thank for the stellar video editing job, so thanks for that, Missa. Now, after this marathon episode of the podcast, I need a little break. And really, on a personal note, I'm getting married and heading down to Mexico for two weeks of fun in the sun. So we're going to skip our regularly scheduled podcast episode on August 15th, and we'll be back in your lives with a great tan, very relaxed, on August 29th. So set the clock, watch the calendar, and we'll be back with you soon. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for watching if you watch on the YouTube channel or the Rights Tech Summit site, and we'll catch you soon. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com. <laughs>